Investors Chronicle. Welcome back to the Companies and Markets show. It is the 1st of September 2022 as we record. That's for us, not for you, listener. And uh, Dan Jones is joined in the studio on this episode by Alex Hamer, Alex Newman, Michael Fahey and Mark Robinson as well. All that to come. But first, a quick roundup of the news this week. Yet another sector under pressure. On Tuesday, the British Beer and Pub Association and the heads of six breweries and pub companies penned an open letter to the Prime Minister seeking targeted support. It comes with some companies facing energy bills which are more than 300% up on pre-COVID levels. Speaking of energy bills, the grassroots movement Don't Pay is continuing to gather momentum. The group are urging consumers to go on strike over rising energy bills and have added 130,000 supporters since mid-June. The group is hoping to amass a million supporters who will cancel their direct debit payments to energy companies en masse on October the 1st. More bad news for Cineworld. As reported by the Financial Times, the company made an error with the disclosure of its biggest shareholder in its annual report for the year to the 31st December 2021. This comes after the cinema giant confirmed that it is exploring a bankruptcy filing as it looks to restructure while weighed down by a huge pile of debt. Elsewhere, US officials have told chipmaker NVIDIA to stop selling to two Chinese companies. The chips in question are designed for artificial intelligence work. China have condemned the move as Washington steps up efforts to restrict the sharing of cutting-edge technology uh, with its trade and military rivals. And staying in China, internet titan Tencent is pivoting from years of aggressive buying to now focus on selling. The company has outlined a soft target of divesting about $15 billion of its $88 billion listed portfolio this year, according to FT sources. And finally, the chief executive of Reckitt Benkiser, Laxman Narasimhan, will leave the business at the end of September. Over to Dan with the rest of the show. Thanks, John. Yes, we have another action-packed schedule today. We are first going to be looking at Braemar and a little discussion of shipping and freight rates and everything to do with that. And then we are looking at our cover story, which is about the oil majors, Shell and BP, what the future might hold, the the medium term as well as the near term, which might be uh, quite predictable to people. Uh, And then finally, we are going to be looking at the pound, which has had another uh, pretty dismal time of it over the past few weeks. We're going to be looking at uh, the reasons why and the implications for certain companies and uh, what investors can take away from that fall. But let's let's start with with shipping uh, with me. Mark Robinson has covered uh, Braemar's results. The AIM company, you know, a little, a little uh, unheralded uh, compared with its larger peer, Clarkson. But um, the results themselves were fairly uh, positive after a, a delay in putting out those numbers. And, and, and the company itself is still pretty bullish, Mark. Yeah, it was a, it was a fairly lengthy delay as well, given that uh, the year end is the 28th of February too. But it was all linked to uh, an acquisition of a, a German company uh, a while back, and uh, the the sort of consequent analysis that looked at the way that they'd uh, uh, treat, treated reserves on on the, the balance sheet. But uh, leaving that aside, it was it was some cause of consternation actually. But leaving that aside, the, the, all the metrics were positive. You know, you know revenue uh, from continuing operations was up by about a fifth, and underlying profit by a third. 
uh, the the market was cheered as well because uh, the chairman Nigel Payne said that uh, expectations for the current financial year are well ahead of uh, the board's previous expectations. So it was little wonder that the shares uh, increased as they did on on results day. Yeah, I, I think that's particularly interesting. I mean, obviously everyone's concerned about the outlook right now, but that is coming at a time when freight rates have actually been you know dropping quite significantly in recent months. But uh, it's fair to say, you know, the company's not just about, it's not just keyed into, uh, you know, the path of those rates. It has more strings to its bow than just the price of shipping itself. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, Nigel Payne said that the, the global shipbroking industry is conditions are pretty favourable at the moment. And, you know, he cited um, some headwinds like exchange rate volatility and inflationary effects. We all know about those. He also um, uh, pointed out that the the conflict in Ukraine wasn't going to have any uh, material effect on trading or cash flows. I guess it, it's true that um, spot rates for containers leaving the major Chinese ports, you know, Shanghai, um, that they've they've pulled back a bit and it's partly the result of consumer spending habits where they've shifted really from goods to services, but they remain uh, elevated. They certainly remain elevated on uh, an historical basis too. So, you know, that's important for investors to keep in mind. And and also the fact that if you're looking at the sector, it's, it's essentially, it's a long-term a growth story, but particularly in emerging and developing economies. And so, you know, if you were including that within your portfolio as well, it's it's, it's looking well beyond the horizon on that. And it, it's that same, it's that familiar story about a sort of a developing middle class in, uh, in emerging and, and developing economies. So you, you're going to have a lot of um, one area that will sort of expand um steadily over the years is in a global dry bulk because demand for those kind of products uh, you know whether it be iron ore wheat sugar or um, cement that's always going to rise as uh, middle classes expand um, in, in the developing and frontier economies too you mentioned ukraine there and i'm just going to bring in my car deputy news editor uh, who's written about shipping in the past because that has had an impact for, for the better for um, shipbrokers in terms of liquid nat- uh, natural gas and, and, you know, obviously the inevitable increased uh, appetite for that and for, for getting some of these, uh, um, you know, for increasing trade there. Is that fair to say, Mike? Yeah, I think so. And when you look at Braemar, um quite a bit of what it does is ship broken. It's getting to cargoes onto ships. So when you have people around the world scrambling to get gas of any kind from Asia, from Qatar, from Algeria, from wherever. They have to get that onto vessels somewhere. And the LNG ships went from being underutilised certainly two or three years ago to um, in the last couple of years rates there have rocketed up. So and if people are really scrambling to get um, LNG ship from one place to another, then, you know, a lot of these LNG cargo ships are fully booked out or are certainly booked months in advance. And in a similar way where we've had this big run-up in container rates, even though that's softening now, it then sort of spurs the next wave of investment. It spurs 
people uh, ordering more container vessels, more LNG vessels. Uh, the shipyards in South Korea suddenly get very busy again. And it's some of the work around that, the financing, the the deals to buy them, is that's where Braemar also makes some of its money as well. Yeah, I, th- I think um, uh, Braemar also mentioned that, uh, to your point there, that capacity at, at, ma- at many shipyards wouldn't be, is unavailable well into 2025. So that's had a, a beneficial uh, an effect on their uh, sale and purchase desk. And presumably that's going to accelerate in the future as uh, that capacity uh, is, is driven up. Yeah, I think um, on containers particularly, uh, the um, spot rates are now falling, but the it's still the average rates for the year um, because they're based on the the rates that people signed maybe a year ago are still holding up reasonably well. You've got some of the big um, container lines expecting to make record profits this year. Mask have upgraded their guidance three times so far this year. Haypag Lloyd are expecting to make something like 18 billion euros. Um, so there's still, for now, some um, strong growth expected in that market, even though it will start to fall away next year. And one of the reasons why it'll start to fall away is because of the massive number of new ships that have been ordered, which, again, is a plus for Braemar. Well, one thing Clarkson said in its uh, results the other week, it was quite interesting just talking about some regulations coming in, you know, as with many sectors now, ESG, sustainable uh, kind of focused regulations, which it says will have the effect of, you know, slowing ships down uh, because emissions reductions... Um, increasing dry dock time due to energy efficiency, that kind of thing. I mean, obviously, it's in Clarkson's interest to say these things are good for for us, but um, but that's something to watch as well, I suppose, from next year. Yeah, there was a change, I think it was about two years ago, in the amount of sulphur that could be emitted through shipping fuel, and that's leading to quite a lot of um, retrofits um, and also um, just orders of new, more fuel-efficient vehicles. Uh, capable of running on other types of fuel. I suppose for shipbrokers, is there much um, impact from you know the way that trade routes are changing as well? You've seen quite a lot of shifts in the US from West Coast to East Coast, partly due to congestion, also due to some labour disputes over there too. I mean... No, it, I don't think so in terms of the, the routes themselves because in general... Um, the container vessels making those routes are the kind of most modern um, post-Panamax huge ships that are capable of doing journeys around the world where they need to. So I don't think that in itself has much of a difference. The The only kind of factor and the only reason really why people have shifted from West Coast to East Coast was that... Um, huge sort of backup of vessels off the court of off the the off the port of long beach in in los angeles and i think mid last year there was something like a hundred ships waiting outside that port it was down to i think i read somewhere something like eight so we would be really down to levels where that congestion is cleared and so you would expect maybe a bit of a reversal of that trade as well from east to west coast yeah We'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, Braemar itself is quite interesting. It has traded at a discount to 
Clarkson historically, it's got a bit of a turnaround plan now. We'll see what happens there. It's also quite interesting, just when I was looking at shareholder register, you know, it's one of those companies, it's quite a big retail following, but almost no institutions at all, which is, you know, a plus or a minus, depending on how you view it, but certainly potentially some scope for uh, interesting things there. Let's let's move on, though, to our cover story this week, uh, looking at energy, looking at the oil majors. Uh, obviously, these are topics at the forefront of all of our lives at the moment, but we're really looking at Shell and BP in particular, uh, obviously from a UK context, as we as we do. Uh, Alex Hamer, our news editor is here. Alex, you wrote the piece. Why don't you just explain sort of the outline, the thinking behind it to begin with? Yeah, I'll just um, I'll just repeat my pitch to you a few weeks ago, sure. um, Dan. But I, it's it's such an interesting time in energy markets. It's also a very distressing time and difficult time for for people on the receiving end of these prices. But we, over the past few years, have, have taken a fairly critical view of Shell and BP as these behemoths that highly indebted, um, you know, they're trying to be all things to all people um, with these big transition plans. Um, you know, Shell made a lot of promises to cut its energy intensity but not its absolute emissions and, and things like this that that kind of you know, shows that they do want to keep increasing output, um, but, you know, are still trying to please um, institutional shareholders who are keen to, to, to give them a green tag. Um, and that's kind of been the way for a few years now of, of how we've, we've, we've seen them. Um, since 2020, um, when they both took big impairments on the slashing of, of forecasts of, of oil and gas prices, there's been a real change in how they operate. Um, any major corporation that, that cuts thousands or 10,000 10, jobs, in, in I think Shell's case, is going to be a different beast to what it was um, a few years ago. And they've done that at the same time as a, a massive change in, in energy prices. Um, so I think in between 2020, when we obviously had you know one famous negative priced future in the US, um, and to now, it's just it's um, chalk and cheese in terms of what's coming through. And as price takers, they obviously can't determine the market, but you know they've ended up as these leaner, um, more focused companies. And and I guess I, I touched on Shell a bit there, but with BP, they'd made these promises around um, divestments and also changing the way they invest in new projects. They would actually see a forty percent reduction in in um, oil and gas um, output by 2030. And so you have this, you know, potentially more profitable, um, leaner um, company where dividends have always been a focus um, and you throw $100 oil prices and, you know, $6 to $10 Henry Hub and oil, gas prices in the, you know, in the tens if not more of of, of euros, um, you're going to see some some pretty extreme levels of cash flow. So kind of basically on the same way that, that they're quite different companies to what they were a few years ago, we've kind of I've, I've taken a blank sheet and tried to really see what an investor is getting out of Shell MBP this year and and beyond given how much the, the energy market has changed uh, recently. Yeah, as you say, I mean, obviously things have, you know, the world has changed this year and there's been a big run-up in, in, in those prices. And the question is, 
really, you know, what what next, as it, as it always is. But one thing you looked at was quite interesting was, you know, Shell and BP in the, in the global context, in the context of, you know, the big US peers and, and how they how they compare valuation-wise, which looks to be in their favour still. Yeah, and I think this is something that um, is once again a change on a few years ago where um, Chevron and, and Exxon um, had slightly less investor pressure to um, buy renewable projects, to, um, you know, they've they've also been cutting operational emissions, but obviously it's, you know, with these companies, operational emissions are a tiny proportion of the the emissions that they're they're linked to, really. Um, but so they were kind of seen as the 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 dirtier, um, I guess, um, oil and gas giants um, or IOCs, international um, oil companies, as they're known. Um, and now I think there's a you know much greater confidence within the industry and also within the investment community. And so Exxon and Chevron are more highly rated than. Um, BP and Shell, and you know, for that we, you know, you look at the total shareholder return forecast from from RBC for this year, seven um, percent for Exxon and Chevron, and fourteen percent um, for BP and Shell. So there's been this almost switching um, in that in that valuation um, this year. Um, so yeah, it's been a, been an interesting swap, I think. And what about those transition risks? Because obviously there are still plenty of investors, you know, who won't hold uh, uh, oil companies, even, you know, this year when some mindsets might have changed. Uh, you know, can, you know, if you're an investor looking for the long term and you, you want to hold them with a view to, well, these companies are trying or say they're trying to, you know, shift shift over, you know, how far along are those plans? How advanced are they? And what do they kind of add or detract from? Yeah, I think, the investment I, think case. I think the context, um, and there was actually a, an interview I did um, that didn't make it into the story um, that looked at the assumptions that the the energy majors are using for their, their climate scenarios. And these scenarios are basically how we, you know, I mean, global emissions and inputs into that and the temperature change that we end up with in 20, 2100. And I think the one that BP is using um, to get to 1.5 degrees um a 1.5 degree increase actually ends us on 1.8 degrees, and and so there's things like that where they're even the numbers they're using are probably not perfect according to these researchers. Um, but you know they're still oil and gas companies, um, and I think all this free cash flow, these these buybacks and these dividends are coming from selling oil and gas at historically high prices. So I think anyone squeamish about holding these companies. Um, previously, you know, either you can swallow that squeamishness and accept the the these massive yields, um, or or not. Um, I I think there there isn't really any change materially to their their you know greenness. Um, it's just that the so the way BP talks about it is the energy trilemma, which includes um, energy affordability, availability, and I think moving into, you know, sustainability or more sustainable energies, and I think that triangle has switched a lot more to um, availability and affordability recently, which, you know, funnily enough, doesn't actually help that much when you <laughs> go to fossil fuels because they're not affordable now. But um, I think those transition plans are, you know, could be supercharged by this this environment. I mean, they obviously have a lot more cash. Um, but that doesn't mean that the renewable energy opportunities are, are, are much more available. Um, you know, even much more before this 
free cash flow scenario, BP was was putting huge amounts into you know the the Irish Sea offshore wind auction where they broke records in 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 um, a joint venture with the German utility. But um, they were already putting a lot of money into this this space. Um, it, this could potentially you know charge that along a little bit. Um, but they they already had a lot of cash. This is you know this cash is going to shareholders um and that i think that's it. that's about it so far cuz i think i think they're quite wary of of ramping up spending of you know the short cycle um uh, there's a little bit of increase um in production from short cycle projects like us onshore but yeah i think they they're quite wary of of suddenly putting you know tens of billions more into um into any projects really just because They've done that in the past and they've stuffed it up for themselves. Um, and prices have fallen and then, yeah, you're back to the square one from an operational perspective. Yeah. Uh, we shouldn't um, neglect, you know, as you say, you know, they are still oil and gas companies to the, to the you know, the uh, the average person. Obviously, they are symbolic of, in some ways, of, of, you know, profiteering and things like that. They're obviously making giant profits at a time of uh, significant energy prices. So, you know, we can't really overlook the... The regulatory risk there. There is a, a windfall tax on, on North Sea operations already, which is admittedly a pretty small part of the overall picture there. I mean, is there, are there bigger risks to the investment case purely because of the nature of what we're experiencing and about to experience over the next few months? Well, I think one interesting, and this, this is medium term, so, you know, there won't be, I don't think, any any massive government interventions that will change the investment proposition um, over the next year or so. Um, but what I think on a purely economic basis, you see demand destruction from such high prices. And one of the, um, the scenario that I, that I talk about in the piece is basically that assumption that, you know, Aramco might not find that much more supply. Um, you know, an Iran deal might happen, but, you know, there's no magic bullet to these energy prices. And therefore you get to the mid 2000, mid 2020s and prices are still quite high, but, you know, adaptation happens. And you then also have um, governments reacting not so much to the, the energy companies, but aggressively pushing um, green policies and spending and shifting. So instead of there being a gradual reduction in oil demand, which is set to peak, I think, um, in a couple of years at about 110 million barrels a day, which is which is 10 percent higher than it was pre pre COVID, um, it 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 instead of being a, a gradual drawdown where you know BP and Shell get to maintain earnings and and keep the party going for for another decade, it becomes quite um, uh, how would you say quite quite aggressive and and things start happening in quite sh- you know they're almost shocks to demand because of the rapid way things are changing. And I can't I can't throw out any major technology changes or specific spending initiatives that that would bring that on, but um, you know, people who do this for a living have have put it together a pretty credible case for that happening. And I think, you know, the world is not um, shocked by shocks anymore. Like it's not you know, maybe in twenty twenty, early very early twenty twenty, if someone said you know, quite dramatic things going to change the energy markets multiple times over the next decade. You'd be like, yeah, right, whatever, mate. But now that seems pretty credible. Yeah. I suppose in some ways 
just even just in terms of gas in Europe in the next six twelve months, you, you know, from industry alone, you're starting to see you know the kind of substitution effects that you wouldn't have seen at all on on a much larger scale for obvious reasons. So we'll we'll see where we are, I suppose, in a year or two's time. Um, let's move on because we are uh, pushed for time as ever. Uh, Shell and BP, obviously, pretty big dollar earners, and if you're a dollar earner right now, you're looking pretty good from a UK perspective. Uh, purely due to the uh, latest fall in the value of sterling. Um, worst month since the referendum, I think uh, August was. Uh, we are down to about 116, perhaps below that against the dollar. Uh, let's, we, we'll talk about uh, some of the companies involved uh, in a moment, but I, I suppose we maybe want to speculate or discuss the, the reasons for that, uh, that renewed fall first. Um, Monetary yeah, policy is one example, Mike. You've got some uh, some thoughts. Yeah, I suppose we're down, what, 14% so far this year. Um, and the kind of gaping hole we have in the middle of uh, UK leadership at the minute is clearly not, um, <laughs> not very good for the outlook. Um, there are some fears over... Who comes in and whoever comes in, what sort of policies they try to set and whether or not, I mean, Liz Truss has talked about um, maybe ending the independence of the Bank of England. Um, so the forecasts are all pretty grim. Uh, the Capital Economics put out a note the other day saying that they expect or that they think that the pound could fall as low as, a dollar five by the middle of next year. Yeah, it does seem to, you know, I mean, forecasts are, uh, uh, aren't always correct, as we know, but people are very much uh, yeah, betting a, further falls at the moment. Yeah, it's the biggest. I mean, we're at um, the lowest level now since about 1984, or that would take it to the lowest level since 1984. Yeah. Speaking of someone who's going to America in a few months, I'm uh, looking on with a mild disappointment each week, but there we are. Mark, you were... Oh, no, I was just going to point out as well that um, uh, part of the reason that we aren't as faring quite as well as our European neighbours is the fact that uh, GDP in this country is uh, more closely linked to credit expansion. Um, you know, it's a much larger consumer sector, you, generally speaking, a lower level of savings as well. So that's a contrib contributing factor that needs to be taken on board, you know, just because just because of uh, credit costs are increasing. And, and in fact, um, there was statistics out this month which suggest that uh, households in the UK are now uh, borrowing more simply to, um, to cover their, their, their sort of regular costs. So um, that's, that's a quite a dismal... I mean, that, that was something that was waiting to happen for years, actually. Mm. Well, it's quite interesting to me, you know, the other thing we've had this month, obviously, is a big uh, jump up in gilt yields, uh, a big increase in expectations for where, uh, you know, the Bank of England rate might be um, in a year's time or six months' time, which, you know, ordinarily might suggest uh, the currency would strengthen. But really, uh, uh, that's not been the case. I think, you know, the growth worries are uh, paramount at the moment. And, and I suppose those gilt yields are a risk-free rate, aren't they? And then every company that's borrowing has to borrow at higher levels, which um, isn't going to be great in terms of investment. And as Mark just said, if uh, if borrowing levels are the way they are for for households, then the uh, repayment of that debt's going to get a lot more expensive as well. Yeah. Well, well let's go into some of the implications. Um, 
uh, Mike, I know you'll be writing about this in next week's issue, so look out for that piece then. But but just to touch on some of these points, um, I mean, there are obvious benefits for companies earning in dollars. I mean, if you're a, a listener, you have any overseas funds, for example, you're going to get obvious benefits um, just uh, mechanically by the exchange rate, but also the companies themselves. You know, there's the potential for some upside surprises there, putting a positive spin on it if you're uh, earning quite a, amount, a, a decent amount in, in dollars. Yeah, um, I mean, there was a note by one of the brokers, uh, Libra, sort of identifying which of the um, companies are maybe most, are the maybe the biggest beneficiaries, and you've got companies like Sage Group uh, and WPP, the big advertising group, who are very prominent in the US, um, earn most of the revenue in the US, or obviously when you transfer that back, then there's... Um, there's a great upside, but I think um, they were also pointing out that the because these companies are UK listed, there's been maybe a bigger um, sell-off in their shares than is perhaps deserved. Another interesting part of that note was was looking at, um, you know, we have seen, according to their calculations, you know, uh, dollar owners do better this year on a relative basis, even if, as you say, they have fallen, but... But they haven't done as well to the same extent that they that they used to. You know, there's been a what they say is surprising weakness in UK exporters, which you know we've seen some export figures. I'm not sure if that's down to uh, you know new trading conditions with uh, various countries or, or something else. But that is something to watch out for as well. The, the historical parallels aren't always uh, replicated one to one. The other thing I, I suppose to say is, you know, we, again we'll be discussing this in more detail next week in print, but. You know, the obvious way to look at it is, you know, the FTSE 100, the big multinational companies who inevitably have more revenues in dollars. But there are there are those elsewhere as well who are slightly less obvious, perhaps. Um, and the other thing to look for, I think it's fair to say, is the costs, which is much a much harder thing to do to try and work out whose costs are actually in dollars. And, you know, that's often something you don't know until you see the statement and they say, well, our costs have been a, yeah, are up even more than you thought they would be. There's not that same breakdown in where you, um, well, there's usually the breakdown in the accounts of segmental revenue and where you earn your money, but not so much where you spend it. I mean, to that end, I think in the Librem highlight a, a, a couple of companies which, um, uh, you know, which don't break down the, the source of their, their input, input pricing and costs, but which have over the last two decades had quite a high correlation with the movement in the dollar that's Burberry, Kinetic, and Home Surf, which they also note have um, have done better than their peers and the sort of broader market in in share price terms this year, implying the kind of opposite effect to the companies that Mike was talking about there. So Sage and WPP, um, i.e., that they may be overvalued and also their costs are rising at a faster pace than that investors are anticipating or are viewing. But, uh, you know, I suppose luxury goods is what, you know, but in Burberry's case, in defence, in Kinetic's case, have been two, you know, relative shelters this year. So um, so that might explain a little bit of that that sentiment mismatch. Um, bit hard to say. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's also difficult to say, isn't it, with, with, with currencies. I think, Mark, you, you always take the view in the past that, that things kind of come out in the wash, you know, um, and that, that, that you know, in a, in a year's time, things may swing back. You know, we 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 take a very try and take a slightly longer view 
point. Yeah, Dan's right to talk about sort of looking at this from a granular point of view as well. Because I mean, if you if you go into resource companies or in fact airlines, anything like that, you have to take on board um, hedging arrangements too. So it's quite a complicated, uh, quite a complex complicated ask for investors yeah and as you say alex you know we shouldn't let the the tail wag the dog and, and just start looking solely at this and, and maybe overlooking something of more fundamental importance but nonetheless it is the kind of thing you can see coming out in a few months time in the in the results as as a you know a positive or negative uh, uh boost even if it is short term and optical we, we we can probably say that it would be good for distributions at, at least yeah, based on the proportion distributing in dollars, yeah, that that should be a, um, some solace for uh, uh, investors if they uh, still need us in a few months' time. Which let's hope things are going a bit better by then, but we shall see. That uh, that brings us to the end of the show this week. Uh, thank you for listening to us. Thank you to Mark, to Alex Hamer, to Alex Newman, and to Mike, and to John. And thank you once again to you for listening. We'll be back next week with another Companies and Market Show. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.